0: One of the sayings of our pastor of the many that he has is that uh, everybody has a plan until you get hit in the mouth. And so today has been one of those mornings. We had a leak in the uh, education building. Uh, So there was a river of water coming out of the basement uh, earlier today when I got here. So we've been dealing with that a little bit. But we're all here now to celebrate Emmanuel, to celebrate God with us. So Merry Christmas. I'm glad you're all here. I'm glad you woke up from your stupor of yesterday's food and presents and merriment that goes around on, uh, on Christmas Day. Uh, we had a great one at our house. Uh, it's hard not to have a great one when you have uh seven and a nine-year-old running around with all their hopes and dreams that have just been uh, accomplished uh, with all the presents that they got. So, um, but I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here. And uh, uh, what are some, let me start off with a question. Uh, What are some traditions you have in your household for Christmas? I know last year uh, some traditions were probably you had to either alter or couldn't do it all, whether you weren't able to get together with family or you just had to change some of your traditions. We just blew all all our traditions up last year and we went to Disney World, so that was fun. Uh, I couldn't talk Danielle into doing it this year. We had to do the boring old ham dinner and all that kind of stuff, but I'm just kidding. Uh, it was still fun. But uh, a tradition that Danielle could not believe when we got married is that my family, growing up, we always went to the movies on Christmas Day. I don't know where it started. I don't know how it came about. But we finished our big Christmas meal at my aunt's house. And then we would uh, leave from there and, and go by uh, the movie theater. And popcorn was our dinner that night. Uh, so it was always fun. Uh, and then uh, something we started as a family... Um, again, with traditions, you never know quite where they start or why they start, uh, but we go to Waffle House. Uh, that is our Christmas evening meal every single year. We, we go to Waffle House, and uh, so yesterday we, had, we went to the movies and we went to Waffle House. It was a wonderful afternoon uh, and evening for us, uh, but one of the, the reason I talk about traditions, one of the traditions we have attempted uh, this year is one that Caroline brought to our attention, uh, and it's, it's the continuing um, journey as we try as a Ivy Creek Creek kids to uh, have parents be the disciples of their children. You know, we're here as a church to teach, but we want to teach parents. We want to put tools in the parents' hands uh, to be able to talk about things of Jesus, to have those spiritual conversations. And one of the ways that we did that at Christmas is with these blocks that you see. Uh, And as you can see, there. Uh, 1 through 25, so you start on December 1st, and you go to December 25th, and each night out of this book called The King is Coming, uh, you talk about a character and a story uh, out of the Bible. Most of them are in the New Testament, Uh, then you switch to New Testament characters as you get closer to Christmas, Uh, but they've been absolutely wonderful, and it's a neat concept uh, of what they do because each night so on December 1st, for instance, we would read the devotion, uh, and the, the children would then turn, the blot one quarter of a turn, and on there, as you can see, is an apple. So I bet you can guess the story on the first one was about Adam and Eve. There you go. Good job. There he is. Um, Adam and Eve, and about sin and how sin entered the world and how creation uh, was ruined uh, by man. And then... Uh, And then you went on to the second day and the third day, and you just went on down through. And as you got to Christmas Eve, you then got to do something different with the blocks is you got to turn it another corner turn. And as you did that, and this I learned in the first service, this is not a quick process. So we're going to try to do it as fast as we can, but you start to reveal letters. And as you reveal those letters, it begins... It gives you a message of what Christmas is all about. And one of my letters actually fell off. I know. So it begins to reveal the message. And I know you're never supposed to turn your back on your audience, but y'all be nice. see, y'all are waiting with bated breath, so you won't fall asleep on me, tells us that as you go, you have God with us, Emmanuel, God with us, with a lion, which is what Christmas is all about, That's that's what the meaning of Christmas is. And as we went through this book, like I said, you you talk about the Old Testament characters and then you start into New Testament characters. Uh, And at the end of each little devotion, they would say this prayer. So Adam and Eve began to hope and to pray God, will you bring us back one day? God, will you come back to stay? And that's the recurring theme throughout the book. But then, as you get into the New Testament characters, the prayer changes. For such a long time, God seemed far away, but now he has heard what we hoped and we prayed. God is coming to earth to stay. Emmanuel, God with us. How amazing is that concept? That God would come down to earth to live with his creation. But why? Why would he come down to earth to stay? And so today we're looking at the why of Christmas. Why did Jesus come to earth to live as one of us? Why did Jesus come into this world in such a lowly posture By being born in a stable, placed in a feeding trough of animals, and worshipped by the lowliest people of the culture. What was God thinking? What was Jesus thinking that first Christmas? Today's scripture that we're just about to read is not a typical scripture for what we see at Christmas. But what we will see today is that it shows us why Jesus chose to live among his people and to be Emmanuel God with us. So if you will, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. And we're going to read uh, verse 3 through 11. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Y'all pray with me. Father God, we do thank you for this scripture. We thank you for your teaching. We thank you for how you use it to mold us and shape us. And so we ask you to speak to us today. Mold us and shape us. And continue to teach us how we can be uh, the fully devoted followers of Christ that you have called us to be. Lord, may the words of my mouth glorify you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, uh, this, this scripture should sound very familiar. Uh, as part of Pastor Craig's sermon, I think it was, the f- anyway, it was a few weeks ago. The first, I think it was the first Sunday in, in December. Uh, he read this exact verse uh, as part of his conclusion uh, to a sermon. So it should sound very familiar, uh, and it's because of that, of, of hearing that verse and hearing uh, him read it and the context in which you read it, as well as uh, what God was teaching me and being part of the, um, the Christmas musical that we did and, and hearing different songs with that. God led me to this message because what was Jesus thinking? When he came down on that Christmas night, what were his thoughts? What was he thinking? And as we sat there and read that, I bet you were going, you know, that's, that's probably not what the verse I would have used for a Christmas verse. There's Luke 2, there's verses in Matthew, there's Isaiah. And then looking at the context, you'd be right. It's not talking about the coming Jesus in that aspect, Paul's intent uh, in the book of Philippians, in this verse, in this chapter, was, not, was for correction at the church at Philippi. He was encouraging them to come together in unity. Um, it is in that correction that he's pointing them to Christ. It is in that moment we can take the truth of Scripture to see into the mind of Christ. See, to get, to get a glimpse into his thinking, the night be- he became Emmanuel. I'm a big fan of crime dramas. In fact, one of my favorite ones is uh, NCIS. You know, I love to see Leroy and Jethro Gibbs get in there and figure it out, using his team. I still can't figure out, I'm still having a hard time adjusting to Lee, Jethro Gibbs not being there, but uh, still getting through that, but... I love to see how all the pieces come together. They find this piece of evidence. They see this ballistics report. They get this eyewitness account. They are piecing all of that together. And miraculously, at the end of 60 minutes, it all comes together, and they catch the bad guy. But what if, in that crime drama, they could go straight to the person that did it? that all these other pieces of information are trying to get to what the motive is for the crime, what if you could just go straight to the person and ask them, hey, why did you do that? Why did you steal that money, or why did you um, hurt that person? I believe this is what Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to convey to the church at Philippi. It not only tells us what happened on that fateful night in Bethlehem or why it matters, but it gives us a glimpse, glimpse into what Jesus was thinking as he came down to be God with us. If we can understand what Jesus was thinking as he came down among his people on that very first Christmas, then you can understand the true meaning of Christmas. If you can understand the true meaning of Christmas, then you can understand the true intentions of God and what he was trying to do. And if you understand that, then you understand everything that matters most, and you will never, ever be the same. So what was Jesus thinking on that night 2,000 years ago? First thing he was thinking is that he was thinking humbly. And that's our first point in our outline today. I'm not sure if you've noticed it or not, but people in this world, they're they're pretty selfish. I mean, I'm not. And you're not. They're not talking about us, but everybody else is. You know, it's all of them that are selfish, and let's face it, you all know who they are. Well, Paul had some of those people in his church at Philippi. There was no kind of peace on earth and goodwill towards men there in Philippi. There was selfish ambition and vain conceit. There was division, much like the world that we live in today. In the second chapter of Philippians, Paul is telling them it's, that's not how a church should act. He's reminding them the church is the body of Christ and that Christ is the head of the church. Because of this, it is Christ's mind that should rule and control the church. And his mind is humble, but this church wasn't acting in a humble way. They are not looking out for others. They are not trying to position themselves. They are trying to position themselves higher than others because they truly think they are better than everybody else. I mean, we're all human. We get it, right? On some level, this is how we were created. We were created to matter. We were created to worship. We were created to do something with our lives, and we also want others to know that we matter. But sin has ruined us all. Before sin, our audience was God and God alone. Now we walk around with what Paul calls here selfish ambition. Instead of accepting God's word that we matter, we go around using others to prove it. We go around pushing others down so that we can be better. Why do we do this? Well, because of the second word that Paul uses here, the word conceit. So what does this mean? Essentially, we are, we, are, we are hungry to be known. We are hungry to be famous. We hunger for honor. We hunger for respect. We hunger for assurance. We have a longing to matter, and so in everything that we do, we are always pointing back to ourselves. Look what I can do so that people can see that we matter. In other words, we think pridefully. We think better of ourselves. Those prideful thoughts not only separate us from God, they separate us from each other. God looked down at the pride of man, and he did something about it. Christmas is God's response to our pride. In Christ, and in the mind of Christ, We see a different way to live. We see a different way to think. Look at verse 5 again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. On the hills of exhortation, Paul directs our attention to Jesus. He puts the focus on Jesus. Not only what Jesus did, but what Jesus thought as well. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. On that first Christmas, Jesus entered the world without selfish ambition or conceit. In doing so, we see the mind of Christ. We saw what Jesus was thinking, and in return, Paul says, think like that. Think like Jesus. So what was Jesus thinking on that first Christmas? Definitely not, a, not what us selfish people think. Look at verse 6 and 7. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself out for us. Think about that. This is what Christmas is. The emptying of Jesus on our behalf. The Bible says that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus was not the backup plan. This was God's plan all along. After sin broke the world, Jesus entered the world to live humbly as a servant so that he can save his people. Now, if there's anybody that could have come into this world and acted like he was better than everybody else, it would be Jesus. And this is basically what Paul is saying in verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. You see, Jesus was still fully God on that first Christmas. Being God is who he is. He doesn't know how to not be God. He just can't stop being God. If he stops being God, then there ceases to be a God. What Paul's saying here is that Jesus did not give up his divinity. He just added humanity to it and gave up some of his divine privileges. No longer could he be everywhere at the same time. He was stuck to this body that he was now in. But it was something he was willing to give up because he did not clutch onto these, this like a treasure to be retained at all costs. When Jesus came down, he came all the way down to earth. He came into our experience of humanity with all the weaknesses and all the limitations. It still hurt when he hit his thumb with a hammer. Why? Because the lower Jesus goes, he can be sure that no one is outside of the saving circle of Jesus. He came down to the lowest so that he could save the lowest and everybody above. To put this in perspective of of our humanity, C.S. Lewis puts it like this, the eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe, became not only a man, but before that, a baby, and before that, a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think of how you would like to become a slug or a crab. That first Christmas, Jesus came from glory to humanity. He did nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. He counted you as more significant than himself and his desires. He looked to your interests, not not his own. On that first Christmas, Jesus was thinking humbly. The next thing that he was thinking, or what he was also thinking is my second point today. Jesus was thinking obediently. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. Someone once said, true obedience is humble and true humility is obedient. Jesus' humility does this. It leads to his obedience. Think of it like this. The true test of humility is how far you're willing to go to obey. Christmas shows us the extent of Christ's obedience. Think about it. He came down, conceived by the Holy Spirit, spent nine months in the womb, born a baby like any other baby. He grew slowly, learning to walk, talk, think, reason, work, follow, lead, listen, and obey. He had to do all the things that you and I had to do even though he is the one that created us to do them. He knew how it worked. He knew how the process worked. He knew how maturing of the body worked because he created it. He created the process. And do you know where that development and obedience led him to? Led him straight to the cross. It led him straight to death. Christmas is not just a celebration of God coming to earth. It's also a pointer to his death on a cross. Jesus did not enter the world as a man just to see what it was like. It was not part of this, some grand experiment to see what would happen. Jesus coming to earth was a mission. It was a mission for Jesus to save his people from their sins, and everything he did in this life was done in order to achieve that mission. Christmas is about so much more than baby Jesus coming. It is about the man, Jesus, dying. In verse 8, we see two reasons for this mission. One, Jesus' obedience to his father. And two, we see a sacrifice for us. Not only did Jesus know, what, know that he was going to die, he knows how he was going to die. Think about how incredibly difficult this would be for us. I mean, everybody knows about your birthday, right? Everybody knows when you're born. But nobody knows their death day. Nobody knows when Jesus will call us home. Nobody knows when it's all going to be over. But Jesus did. Not only did he know what, he knew how, he knew the difficulty the suffering, and the pain, but he obeyed anyway. He still did it. Jesus did not use his divinity to to deny his death. He submitted to his humanity and experienced death. He had enough power to avoid the cross. But in obedient humility, he endured it. All for you all for his people. Verse 8 reminds us that not only was Jesus going to die, but also the way that he was going to die, even death on a cross. Let me explain death on a cross for a second. The cross was the lowest type of death one could experience in this culture. It was a death reserved for criminals and slaves On the cross, Jesus not only experienced the pain of death, but also the shame of death. Theologian Fleming Rutledge said said this about the cross. Crucifixion. It was supposed to be seen by as many people as possible. Debasement resulting from public agony was a chief feature of the method, along with prolonging of agony. It was a form of advertisement or public announcement This person is the scum of the earth, not fit to live, more like an insect than a human being. The crucified wretch was pinned up like a specimen. Crosses were not placed out in the open for convenience or for sanitation, but for maximum public exposure. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death. The fact, his death was how deep his obedience went. Even death on a cross was how far his obedience went. The depth and distance of Christ's obedience is not some minor part of the Christmas story. It is the Christmas story. We cannot separate the birth of Christ from the death of Christ. Jesus is the only one that has ever lived that was born with a mission to die. It is that mission that was on his mind from the moment he was born. But that was not all that was on his mind. He was also thinking beyond the grave. He came to give us more than his death. He he also came to give us life. He came to give us his glory. On that first Christmas, Jesus was not only thinking humbly and obediently he was also thinking eternally, and that's our third point today. Jesus was thinking eternally. Look at verse nine. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, in my study and and when I'm learning, when I see a therefore, I always want to know what it's there for. As we just saw, so that means we've got to look back at the previous verses, and as we saw in the previous verses, Paul's explaining the depth and the distance of Christ's love for you by explaining that he not only dies, he dies an excruciating, humiliating, and painful death. Or verse 9 picks up. It's like Paul is saying, because of what Christ did on the cross, because of all that he endured on the cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. And that's the name of Lord. So that when anyone hears the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, not only on earth, but also in heaven and in hell and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The final thought in Paul's illustration into the mind of Christ is describing Christ's exaltation, which was God's elevating Christ to the highest position, which is granting him the name above every other name. The Greek word used here is roughly translated super exalted. Not just exalted, Super exalted, which means exalted above every other thing that's out there. It was exalted to the highest place. This is in reference to the resurrection, the ascension, and the glorification of, Christ, of Jesus following his extremely humiliating death. It goes from the shame of death to the lifting to the name above any other name. It's like this. All the things that Jesus laid down and gave up to come be with us on that Christmas night so many years ago was not only restored to him, but he was also given much, much more. What started on that Christmas night is proof that this world is not all that there is. Christ showed us that there is another world coming, and we have seen what happens at the end. On that fateful night, Jesus thought of his eternal glory the eternal glory of God the Father. So he came in humble obedience to death, even death on a cross, because the greatest glory is found in someone giving up his glory to save others. If we see what Christmas truly is, how can we not praise our glorious God? The true meaning of Christmas, the true intention of God is to bring his people to their eternal home. Jesus entered our world so that we could enter his. He was thinking eternally on our behalf to save us from our sins once and for all and to usher us into the presence of the glorious God. And it is up to us to go and tell the world of this wonderful truth. A beautiful illustration of this is seen in one of the other events that happened on that night 2,000 years ago an event that happened in a field just outside of Bethlehem with some shepherds watching over their flock in the dark of night. As we finish up this morning, I'm going to read the final devotion that's in the book that I talked about earlier that goes with these advent blocks. These words are far better than I can use to illustrate not only the magnificence, but also the splendor and humility of that night but also our response to it. The best part of Christmas, the shepherd's story and our story. Wouldn't it be nice if we could keep Christmas going all year long? What if I told you there's one more Bible story that says we can do exactly that? It's the very first Christmas celebration ever. When Jesus was born, the first people to celebrate Christmas with him weren't the important wise men. It wasn't Simeon and Anna in the temple either. And it wasn't his friend, John the Baptist. You know, the camel-haired, bug-eating guy. No. The first people to celebrate Christmas with Jesus were shepherds. Not, Not who you would have picked, huh? That's God for you. He doesn't pick the people, we might think. This is how it happened. A bunch of shepherds were out in the field. It was late. It was dark. Some of the shepherds were taking a nap while the rest made sure the sheep stayed put. Then, suddenly, out of nowhere, a dazzling light appeared in the sky. The shepherds strained their eyes to look into the light and could could just make out a figure. It looked a bit like a person, but it was far too bright to be any person they knew. Then the figure spoke, Hello, shepherds. And they realized it was far too loud to be any person they knew, too. That's when it hit them. This is an angel. Shepherds had never seen an angel before, they were afraid. But the angel said, Don't be afraid. I have good news. The old promises are coming true. God is sending a king to make the wrong things right and the dark things light. The shepherds were stunned, but the angel wasn't done. Suddenly, the dazzling light multiplied into two lights, then 10, then 100. And before long, the entire sky was filled with light. There were more angels in the sky than stars. They were singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to all people. God really is coming, the angel said. And if you hurry, you can find him in a stable in Bethlehem. The shepherds weren't sure what they would find, but they knew they didn't want to miss this. They ran all the way into town, searching at every stable they could find. Most of the stables were dark, filled with sleepy cows and donkeys. But one had a light. And they walked in, they saw a family, a mommy a daddy, and a tiny, helpless baby, the baby king. Emmanuel, God with us. And what do you think the shepherds did? They sang the song we've been singing all month. For such a long time, God seemed far away. But now, he has heard what we hoped and we prayed. God is coming to earth to stay. Then, They rushed out of the stable and into town, waking people up, telling everyone they met about the baby king. That's how it is when people see Jesus, whether it's Christmas time or not. They go and tell others. They can't help telling everyone the story, the story of how much God loves his people and how far God goes to get his people back. The story of God coming to earth to stay, the story of Christmas. Christmas may be over, But the best part of Christmas lasts forever. Jesus is still with us. His spirit is in you and in me. God is with us, even when it's hard, even when we feel alone, even when it's not Christmas. God is with us, and he will be forever. For such a long time, God seemed far away, but now he has heard what we hoped and we prayed God is coming to earth to stay. This leads us to our sermon in a sentence today. For such a long time, Jesus seemed so far away, but because of his humbleness, obedience, and eternal vision, he heard our prayers and came 2,000 years ago to stay. And now is it up to us to go and tell of his glorious sacrifice he made for his people? And as you finish these blocks, It comes down to the last couple of days. You have Christmas Eve, you talk about the baby in the manger. Christmas Day, we go and tell. And so, when you break it down to the simplest form, we've experienced Jesus, so we need to go and tell the world. So, you see, my friends, it really is that simple. Jesus has come, so go and tell the world about him. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for today. We thank you for this time to examine your scripture, to to be a part of what you have to teach us, and Lord, to continually remind us that uh, it was not an easy task that Jesus came to do. He left all the glory of heaven to come and be a baby that cried and needed milk and needed nourishment and all the things that babies do, but he did it for us. And so I pray as we enter into this time of invitation that we, seek our, we search our own hearts. And Lord, you point out those, those things that we need to offer up to you. And Father, if we're not out there telling others about you, about our experience that we have with you, then we're not doing what you've called us to do. So Father, be with us as we uh, enter into this time of, of, of invitation and, and thought. Uh, search our hearts.